the idea that I would sign up for a military that potentially could then be under the control of a president who his aides were having serious discussions about using the military to seize voting machines is like something to just put your head around and be like, wow, this isn't exactly storming Normandy. You're 16, 17 years old. You see a homeless veteran. You're thinking in your head, they serve this country and now they don't have a house to live in. Why would I risk my life, possibly risk a limb for a service that doesn't seem to benefit me? Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Corey, what do we have today? We've got a jam-packed episode today. On today's show, Arizona is fast-tracking teachers to try and meet a pressing shortage. We'll talk about their approach to staffing classrooms. Then we'll move on to higher education with a little check-in on the University of Austin. The military is having a hard time filling out the ranks. We'll debate why that is and whether Top Gun Maverick can save them. Congress might finally have a deal to fix an archaic piece of election law, and Americans are blowing big bucks in Europe. So if we're lucky, Ravi might finally show us some pictures of that Italian villa he's been eyeing. But first things first, it's hot. It's really, really hot outside. Hundreds of millions of people across the globe are facing scorching temperatures this week as President Biden takes L after L on his ambitious climate agenda. Last month, the Supreme Court decided to limit the EPA's ability to regulate carbon emissions from power plants. And just last week, Senator Joe Manchin told Democrats that he would not support a bill with new spending on climate change. Until we see the July inflation figures, until we see the July basically uh, Federal Reserve rates, interest rates, then let's wait until that comes out so we know that we're going down a path that won't be inflammatory to add more to inflation. Inflation is absolutely killing many, many people. They can't buy gasoline. They have a hard time buying groceries. Everything they buy and consume for their daily lives is a hardship to them. And can't we wait to make sure that we do nothing to add to that? Robbie, we'll get to the White House here in a little, but what's going on with these heat waves that we're experiencing? Yeah, I think every year it seems brings us new records. And I think you have to just look across the globe and say, like, you know, not argue by anecdote, but just say, is this the hottest it's ever been? Is, is the trend heading in a bad direction? And I think by and large, we're in really bad shape. And I think, you know, I think back to, you know, Adam McKay, uh, was on uh, the Smartless podcast a few months ago, and he was talking about uh, record heat that we were seeing in Alaska. And he said that it was 20 degrees more than any other temperature recorded on record in Alaska. And he said, <laughs> that's like somebody beating Usain Bolt by like a half an hour in a sprint. And that's what some of these records are, is they're so jaw-dropping and scary that I think we need to take note. So I think as, as I start this discussion about what do we do about climate, I start with the presumption that we need to act fast, we need to be bold, and we need to try as much as possible to try to slow down climate change. Otherwise, this is going to be catastrophic. And just to put some uh, numbers behind these records, in Spain and Portugal, there have been wildfires because of the heat. 1,900 people died there. London hit 104 degrees yesterday, which is the highest on record. And the UK health had to put a level four heat advisory warning out, which is the first time they've ever had to do that. That's the highest level that they have. They had tarmac melting in some of their transportation systems. Wow. And over 100 million people are under alerts right now for extreme heat in 28 states in America. Yeah, it's pretty extreme pretty much everywhere. And there are a lot of people who say that we're just not taking this heat wave serious. So, well, it's interesting because it seems like there's a little bit of art imitating life here because uh, this there was this newscast out of the UK that seemed to be very similar to a scene in Don't Look Up. The first clip here is from the Adam McKay film, actually, uh, where they're trying to alarm people about this comment. Are we not being clear? We're trying to tell you that the entire planet 
is about to be destroyed. Okay. okay. Um, well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. And the second clip comes from an actual uh, newscast from the UK. I think there will be hundreds, if not thousands, of excess deaths. So we all like nice weather, but this will not be nice weather. This will be potentially lethal weather for a couple of days. It'll be brief, but it'll be brutal. So, John, I want us to be happy about the weather and every single... I don't know whether something's happened to meteorologists to make you all a little bit fatalistic and, and <laughs> harbingers of doom. We talked about Don't Look Up here a couple months ago. I think you said you really couldn't get through it because you felt it was just a little too preachy. I just, I believe what they're trying to say, yeah. which is I, I'm alarmed by this. So, like, the idea that I need to, like, at least for me, I don't need this. I, I get <laughs> what they're trying to do, but I'm alarmed. I'm ready. And, I and watched, we'll get to I'm I'm pro a lot of the things we could do to solve this. I watched the whole thing with my dad. And then after it was like, you know what they're trying to get at, right? And he's like, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> see, see, like, well, they're not, if they're, they're not going to convince me of something I don't already believe. And they're not going to convince Ricky's dad of something he probably should believe. So that I'm just well, not no, sure he, I mean, he does, but do the metaphor just went right over his head. Yeah, yeah, no, he wasn't well, seeing the one-to-one. <laughs> well, um, let's talk a little bit about what it is that the Biden White House is trying to do to, to possibly mitigate some of these situations. On Wednesday, uh, Biden laid out executive actions on climate change during a visit to a former coal power plant in Massachusetts. His administration will direct $2.3 billion in funding for FEMA's resilient infrastructure program in fiscal 2022. They're also trying to broaden a low-income energy assistance program that will include like cooling centers for people in low-income areas. And he also directed the Interior Department to propose the first wind energy areas in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, but are any of these things going to come anywhere close to the climate bill that it seems like they're just not going to get passed because of Manchin's objections? Well, I would say just in the first place that I like this prep, like preparedness spending to make sure that we can actually deal with the heat waves that are happening right here, right now. I think that's pragmatic. I like it a lot better than the tax incentives that are in the larger package that he's trying to push, which are very concentrated on solar and wind, which I personally don't believe is the source of energy that's going to save us. And just to put some context around that, just last year, solar uh, the solar sector got 267 times the tax credits per unit of uh, energy that they produced than nuclear did and wind 99 times. So I don't like where those tax, tax incentives are going. I think that's misplaced. But I do like the preparedness spending because obviously we're seeing right now, especially in the UK, examples of like they can't even run their trains because things are melting off of the surfaces of their stations. Yeah, I agree with you about nuclear. We need to be putting way more into it. We'll link in the show notes to previous segment we did on nuclear, which is, you know, the cleanest possible form of energy. Uh, you know, as we've talked about, there's a lot of myths about nuclear mm -hmm. energy and a, a lot of environmental activists have been way too slow to embrace the, the technology. And I would love to see more incentives for that, especially, you know, creating a nuclear power plant is expensive. It's risky. It comes with all kinds of regulation. If we can make that easier, I think that can make a huge dent here. Yeah, not only that, we had two uh, power plants that just prematurely shut in Michigan and New York because they can't afford to stay open. Nuclear power plants based, like, that should not have shut down. And we're putting all this $300 billion worth of money that now taxpayers are going to shoulder ultimately because we're giving the incentives to the wrong industry, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I blame the Simpsons for this because, you know, you have all, all of this idea. If you think about how many, uh, many storylines on the Simpsons had to do with random 
terrible things that happened in that power plant with Homer Simpson. You know, I think that's what people are thinking of. You know, you're, you're one Homer Simpson away from a nuclear meltdown in your town. Yeah. I remember seeing an interview with an actual nuclear physicist who said that there was no way that Homer Simpson would even get hired to clean the bathrooms at the average uh, nuclear power plant, let alone be, I think he was like a safety coordinator or something. Right. There's no way he would actually get that. But, but you're right. Oh, that yeah. kind of stuff can frame in people's minds that, oh my goodness, if one person like that gets a job in a place like that, then we could have some type of three mile island event or worse something uh, like what happened at Chernobyl. You know? Yeah. And as we've talked about, you know, Chernobyl being like the exception here, most of the meltdowns that have been portrayed in the media, people in hindsight have very different memories of what happened than what actually happened on the yeah. ground. And we won't Including in Chernobyl, it. people have today vastly overestimate the carnage that followed. And Fukushima, Fukushima is the well. most recent one. But Biden pledged that by 2030, that we're going to slash emissions by 50 to 52 percent uh, from the 2005 numbers, right? And there was a, a uh, analysis done by this trade group called the Rhodium Group, and they said that we're on track right now to see somewhere between 24 and 35 percent reduction through actions taken in the private sector. And if people remember the EPA segment I did a couple weeks ago, I talked about how sometimes the private sector has been moving in this direction without the regulation. That's good. That means that we're kind of halfway there if the Rhodium Group is correct. Now, to get to your question, what like what can we make of what Biden's doing here and what pro Congress is proposing? I agree that what he announced yesterday or, or earlier this week is good. It's not nearly enough. The 300 uh, billion in subsidies I like uh, in part because even though it doesn't have any enough on nuclear or anything on nuclear that I could tell, it does like, you know, renewables to me are still an important part of the game here. And there was a Princeton University professor that estimated that if that bill passed, and and obviously there's a lot that probably goes into our faith in this number, that that bill would subtract 1 billion metric tons of emissions, which is one-sixth of Biden's target. So if that's correct or anywhere in the ballpark, then I like that. But I think his executive actions are actually his potential emergency declaration, which people are debating, is the most significant here. And there are a few things that he's contemplating here uh, that people say he's contemplating. Uh, he could suspend offshore drilling. He could curtail or block crude exports. He could direct FEMA to construct renewable energy projects using, and, and here's where I think the biggest thing is, is he could use the Defense Production Act to manufacture clean transportation technologies and renewable energy. And their estimates are that there's about $650 billion that he might be able to use here. And in contrast to the EPA case, where we had this major questions doctrine debate that we were talking about a few weeks ago, this law is very specific, giving him authority over energy. It's actually in the Defense Production Act and it specifically talks about renewable energy too. So I think that could be where he makes the biggest, you know, the biggest impact here. I just have to say, like, the idea of suspending offshore drilling right now when we're dealing with a global energy crisis, though, and a lot of countries are depending on Russia for oil in a way that we're just seeing, like, like Europe fall apart, essentially, yeah, right now. Clear, I, think, I don't think he's going to do that. I don't know, but I, I mean, I, yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I, I mean, that suggestion, I just think right now, I, there's as much as the heat wave is hitting people and people are realizing it. Unfortunately, this is just not where people's top priorities are. This New York Times poll from just this month showed that only 1% of total voters put climate change as the number one thing. Yeah. And so- Don't look up. I, yeah, no, how is this taking that? Well, but but <laughs> I think I think if we're going to talk about tax incentives and $300 billion right now, especially when I think it's going to the wrong industries, that's not what voters really are looking for. They're not looking to shoulder- like the tax burden of potentially 
ineffective energy sources. I definitely agree that suspending offshore drilling or even blocking exports is not something this White House is going to do. That would be political suicide. Yeah, really and you want to save right your now. export block for when you're on a war with somebody. Yeah. And you need to just sure up the, you know, the, the, the homeland. I do think that, you know, Manchin is citing inflation. Yeah. When he says he doesn't want to back the bill. He does leave some room to say if things calm down, he'll revisit it. But it is interesting, you know, this is a bill that I th- is somewhere on the order of $1 trillion in new revenue. So, meaning taxing corporations and high net worth individuals, which is taking money out of the system potentially, obviously, uh, and then $500 billion in new federal spending uh, and credits, right? So, to me, there we're potentially taking more money out of the system with this bill than we're putting into it. So it could actually be deflationary. Now, I do want to pause and say, as a you know longtime Democratic operative, there's a double, triple, quadruple, quintuple dipping in the same group of high net worth individuals. And so I imagine this is the same high uh, net worth individuals and corporations that are paying for expansions of healthcare and all these other yeah. things that people are promising. So I'm a little bit skeptical uh, about whether this is the last time we're going to be going to this group of people and asking them to pay for something. I just think it's interesting that Manchin just keeps with this will they, won't they kind of relationship with the Democrats. You know, Manchin is like that friend who always tells you he's coming to the function and he just never shows up, but he keeps texting you and saying, I, I might be there here in a little bit. I, I might I might be there. Well, I think it's almost midnight for the Dems and I don't I don't think they can count on him to, to show up to this party. I, Even if he did come, what is he going to do? He's just going to bring some of that West Virginia cold brew with him. Well, I, I think it's even worse than the friend who doesn't show up. I think it's like the dad you need who just <laughs> doesn't show up. Like we need we need Manchin. I don't need my friend, but I, I need my dad to show up well, and I need Manchin Demonstration to show up. that our two-party yeah. system's broken, that people need to fall into one team or another and not be reflective of the constituents that yeah. elected them. It's really an unfortunate situation and it just goes to show how bad that works out in practice. So Manchin's not one of the boys? Is that what we're, is that what we're saying? <laughs> not one of the boys? I, I feel like he might be. Well, let's move on to our next story. Seems like Arizona Governor Doug Ducey's been spinning some Pink Floyd lately because he says teachers don't need no education to do their jobs. The Grand Canyon State made news this month when it lowered the requirements to teach inside a K-12 classroom. Now, teachers there only need to be enrolled in a bachelor's program before they can start teaching, and this move led to a fight within the state. The Arizona Educators Association fought this legislation. You have to have some experience. It's going to allow people to do on-the-job training, um, and that's where it's scary. In response, a spokesperson for the governor writes this flexibility will help strengthen the teacher talent pipeline, provide the opportunity for more Arizonans to become teachers and allow for locally driven solutions. Now, the state of Arizona is doing this to counteract a teacher shortage. But Ravi, do you think this is the right way to do something like that? Well, I start with this broad sense that we use this term teacher as a broad category for a lot of different things, right? You have elementary reading teachers, math teachers, teachers who teach physical fitness, tutors. You know, you have people who do special education, small group instruction. And I think there are different skill sets for a lot of those different jobs. I would say, for example, that one of the most important jobs that I think is takes the most skill within our education system is a bus driver. Oh, yeah. If you think about it, oh, yeah. for example, and they don't need uh, uh, college education, but they're essentially being responsible for the safety and well-being of a group of kids who are unsupervised because the <laughs> bus driver has their back to them mm-hmm. while driving. You know, like this is this essentially like if you think about what you ask of a teacher to do for classroom management, which is, I think, the most important threshold skill to be a teacher. And I would say you spend years learning how to be a strong classroom manager. And some 
never get out of that. A bus driver, you have to be kind of a classroom manager with your back to a group of students without any of the training that the teachers have. So I would start by saying that we need to differentiate more. And a good example here is medicine. We have paramedics who often don't need college education. You have nurses' aides. Uh, and then you have uh, l uh, nurses who have lower levels of training. Like my mom, when she entered nursing, had an associate's degree. She wound up getting a bachelor's degree, became an RN. Then obviously we have all the way up to brain surgeons, right? And so I think to myself, like we need to differentiate within schools. I think if this is what Arizona is heading towards, I think it, it, it could be number one, an acknowledgement of a reality. We'll get to that data. But number two, let's differentiate. Let's say like maybe at the elementary level, there's a different level of training in college education required than somebody who's teaching uh, calculus at, yeah. the, at the high school level. And this is also not to say that they don't need education at all, period, in the long term. They have to be enrolled and be moving towards that. And at the same time, they, they're they not going to be left alone with a group of kids. They need to work in collaboration with other teachers. So there's a way to ensure that there is continuous feedback. And this is responding to a really serious shortage in Arizona where there are more than 6,000 positions they're trying to fill, 2,000 classrooms that have been left without teachers and substitutes filling in frequently in practice and 78% of them don't have qualifications. So this is just actually allowing the system to at least reform and remove some red tape rather than just patching the holes with a completely asinine sort of process as they are right now. As a big proponent for higher education, I came into this story wanting to debate against uh, the things that you guys <laughs> are saying and say, no, you need to have a bachelor's degree. But this bill is a lot more measured than I think the original reporting on it suggested. Yeah. The fact that you still have to be enrolled in a bachelor's program and that they're not left alone. So th this is this is a lot more nuanced than I thought it was. I can I make your life easier, though. You want me to give you the straw man? Because I believe it. Uh, I actually think that we should be hiring some teachers do, don't like that don't need to go to college at all. I agree. I, I'll go so like further. What? For some of these jobs, like for instance, if you're teaching physical education, if I think certain tutors, I think yeah. at the lower elementary level, I think yeah. the question I would well, ask I, somebody- I totally disagree with the lower elementary level because you're dealing with children who are a lot more younger and have, you gotta deal with like developmental things at But that you're point. assuming that that's what we're teaching in college. Whereas you can, in a lot of these states, you can get a degree in like pottery or something and be teaching in elementary. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not matched up with- Well, There's, I agree with that, but I do believe that if you're gonna be dealing with young children, children uh, under, under eight or under seven, those people need to have special skills to develop uh, the way the way you learn as a child is very different for each child and I think you have to have very specialized skills to do that I don't think you can just throw somebody in there and like I mean I, I live with a toddler I mean these 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 are complicated people to deal with <laughs> and you need to have some really special training but to let's deal with train that. them on that that's my thing like if you look at even the colleges of education there's mm -hmm. study after study that shows that these are not great institutions that mm -hmm. are actually teaching people to teach mm -hmm. there are exceptions like for instance the relay graduate school of education is a innovative program that's come out in the past 10 years that actually does exactly what this person in that clip was criticizing, which is on-the-job training. Mm -hmm. They actually credential people for master's degrees while training them while they're in the schools. And they they uh, wind up getting them to take video of their class where they get feedback. They're, they go mm -hmm. after school and they, they get together with other teachers and share best practices. And then they have master teachers who've you know, shown through their results and through the, like what I think is a very high quality vetting of a program who then mentor them through their first few years of teaching, which is actually how it should be done. Because like like it, like many things, like medicine, for example, mm -hmm. there's medical school, but then the real learning happens in your residency yeah. in many different ways. And even medical school includes a lot of practice-based learning. And so that's what I would do here. And for different people, I would require different things. Like yeah. I, 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 and we could debate elementary or not. I think in a perfect world, colleges would teach this really well, but in the world where they don't, I'm not sure I want this to be the gating mechanism. 
Yeah, absolutely. From a political standpoint, it, it is nice to see someone on the right like Doug Ducey at least going into into this direction of trying to help teachers and trying to manage the schools in a different way. Uh, you know, compared to what we see DeSantis doing in Florida, which a lot of his a lot of his moves have just been very ideological. Whereas with Ducey, it's like we actually have a problem with our schools. Let's do something practical to fix it. I do appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I well, mean, the teachers has- associations are pissed off about it because that means that the floodgates are kind of open for more people to compete for their jobs unfortunately well, they, should, a union they thing, should welcome you know? more yeah, members yeah. though but i do no, want they to, should absolutely i ran into some teachers from knoxville who listened to our show the other day and i do want to i want to i have them in mind here and i want to i want to give Ducey a hard time about one thing which is really important which is teacher pay oh because yes. regardless mm-hmm. yes. of what credentials we decide on uh, arizona ranks 50th in median annual earnings for teachers after you adjust for cost of living this probably has something to do with the crisis mm-hmm. of, you know, the, the personnel crisis they have there. There's a whole history here, which I won't go into, where they've underfunded this system and mm-hmm. they, they've done some things I agree with and some things I don't. But they, the one thing I think is tragic here is that if, if our kids are the future, we need to be investing in them. And one of the best ways you can invest in that is by paying people enough money to live and thrive, the mm-hmm. people who we entrust with those children. And they're not doing that in Arizona right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on to higher education. Back in November, a group of academics and journalists announced a new college aimed at changing higher education. Founders like Barry Weiss and Niall Ferguson argued that colleges have become liberal echo chambers, no longer places for free thought and debate. Some call this new University of Austin a anti-woke institution. Now, Ricky, you talked to that school's very first group of students. What did they have to say about the reasoning that they they thought this institution was better than the average college? Yeah, well, first I would say that the characterization is probably more that they're illiberal echo chambers that are being kind of uh, touted as liberal echo chambers. But the problem is really illiberalism and the idea that you can't express speech that really matters to you or go out on a limb without your entire life being kind of destroyed socially. And so that's essentially the report that I got from every single student that went to this program. This is just a pilot program, a week long course. There were two of them, but ultimately the school plans to do 2024 for their first undergraduate full enrollment. And, you know, I, in a perfect world, you don't want to have one so-called anti-woke university, but it sounds to me like they were hitting the third rail issues that you feel like you can't really talk about on campuses today. These are all students coming from really elite institutions, like all the Ivies were very heavily represented and they they all said like I just can't speak my mind on my campus and so I went somewhere here where you know you can you can be open you can do what we're doing essentially at this table and having conversations and struggling with difficult issues and hopefully getting closer to truth rather than feeling like we need to all agree and say the exact same thing yeah but when you talk about it as an anti-woke institution I know that's yeah. not your framing for no it, well is... unfortunately it was the headline of my article which I did not write <laughs> yes but, yes um... understandable Understandable. You didn't write the headline. Correct? No, yeah. you never write, <laughs> yeah. never write you the, the headline article, and you're always the, like, oh, yeah. when you see it come out. Like, oh. Yeah. Uh, well, I understand that, yeah, you're, this isn't your framing, but a lot of people are framing this as an anti-woke institution. And to me, that makes it sound like they're trying to create a safe haven for conservatives mm-hmm. in higher education. But what is the real purpose here? Is the purpose here to actually have diversity of thought? Or is it like, oh, we want mostly people who just wouldn't fit in in these so-called illiberal institutions to come here? So the mission is definitely 
not to push any sort of ideological thing. And all the students who talked to me said they were surprised there were students who were Marxists and monarchists and like all different kinds of political beliefs in their classrooms, that there were libertarians, conservatives, classical liberals, like reasonable kind of middle of the road people, but that there were also pretty much every extreme represented mm -hmm. and that they were able to have conversations that were interesting and fruitful and kind of got closer to truth. I mean, of course, this is a, a self-selecting group of kids, yeah. but you know, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to have this like institution that's supposed to be dedicated to what higher education is supposed to be in the first place. But the reality is two thirds of students across the country say they can't feel speak their mind politically that the campus climate is stifling them. And so it's like a tyranny of the minority. Everyone kind of feels that way, except for the people who believe the status quo, which I think is actually the minority of students. And that's defies the whole purpose of why we go to college in the first place. Yeah, I, 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 in reading your article, I found myself thinking, wow, this reminds me of what just college was like in the early 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, makes me really sad that this is like it's, a story. You know, we'd covered this, I think, before you started uh, on the show. And we were, I think, generally hopeful over it. And we had questions about it, but I think we were hopeful. Whenever I see people, um, you know, and I saw in, in seeing Ayan Hirsi Ali and Bari Weiss associated with this, mm -hmm. those are two names to me that if you ever want to play a fun game with your super progressive friends, ask yeah. them what their opinions are of those two people. Yeah. And you'll often, I, this is my experience, people have very strong feelings without a lot of like specifics about those mm -hmm. two people. There's just like very strong reactions. Yeah. And you know, I, what I would say is, and, and when people do have examples of, for those two, I, the, the contradictions are just maddening. Like Ayan Hirsi Ali, for example, a question I often ask of people is, is there something she's saying about her religion or at least her culture that she comes from that you don't say about Christian fundamentalists in the United States, right? Like, I think everybody has a right to critique the extremes of their own culture. Or Bari Weiss, people criticize her for a pro-Israel stance. I'll be like, well, are you an Elizabeth Warren supporter or a Joe Biden supporter? Like, these are pro-Israel people too. Like, why do you have a special set of rules for her that you don't have for other people? And so it's fun. All I'm saying is just ask people about those two and yeah. you'll have a lot of fun. It's so funny to me that you say that's what college sounded like, because this is so foreign to me as someone who was just at NYU like yeah. a year or two ago. I could never speak my mind without getting like just glares and like people saying terrible things. You know, it's it's unfortunately just not what it's like today. And I wish it was like that. And but to be clear, like there's a continuum. Right. And we we interviewed some students recently uh, who've been on the front lines of this debate. Emma Camp, yes, we interviewed her. We're probably going to use some of that in the fall. And the debate around her was really interesting because it was hard for her to show because it was so subjective. It's like like she wasn't like kicked out of school or anything like that. So there's like this continuum of eye rolling, which I think is fine, versus you know somebody shutting down the speech, which happened in my undergrad institution over, like in the past few years in Binghamton University, and certainly happens seems like daily at my law school, Yale. <laughs> every day, every week, there seems to be some incident of that where people are being straight up deplatformed. So I do think there's a continuum from like legitimate you know, the free speech goes both ways, right? People can not mm -hmm. like what you say, but Absolutely. then I do think that the consequences have to be measured. Well, you also have like university sanctioned mechanisms to report things that offend you. Like on right. the back of my NYU ID was, here's who to call if you have a medical emergency and here's who to call if you're offended. Like the right. bias report hotline. That happened which, at Yale where students were sharing yeah. their, I mean, shame on these kids. They're sharing each other's text messages and sending them to the dean, the dad yeah. over like a party. It's just a chilling <laughs> atmosphere. Yeah. But. Yeah, that's interesting. Not my experience with college. It just wasn't like that, but it's, it's interesting that it's gotten that bad, but maybe this will lead to more fruitful conversations on campuses. <laughs> 
All right, so moving on, new data shows every single branch of the American military is struggling to hit their recruitment goals in what is shaping to be the worst enlistment cycle since 1973, and that was the year the U.S. withdrew from Vietnam. The country's armed forces faced a twofold dilemma, a record low share of Americans who are eligible for service and an even smaller share of young people willing to serve. There are a lot of competing theories as to why that's the case, but let's start with the numbers. Ricky, just how bad are things looking for the Pentagon this year? Yep, so as you said, this is the worst since the 70s, which is pretty staggering. Um, every branch is struggling to meet their enlistment goals for the fiscal year, and the Army, for example, is only at 40% of the spots they wanna fill, and they only have three months left in their cycle. So we're seeing a twofold issue of the eligibility problems. There are more disqualifications than ever before. There are 250 different criteria that you can be disqualified on. But largely we're seeing that not having a high school diploma, uh, having a criminal record, drug use, or just not fitting the like health requirements are what's generally disqualifying people. So right now, 23% of 17 to 24 year olds are qualified for service. And then only 9% are willing to serve, which is down from 13% just before the pandemic. So it's tanking. It's It looks really grim. Yeah, this seems like in many ways to follow like a decline in general patriotism. Yeah. And it seems to be also a reflection of polarization. Like, for example, like you know, I have certain strong political beliefs. The the idea that I would sign up for a military that, you know, potentially could then be under the control of a president who his aides were having serious discussions about using the military to seize voting machines is like something to just put your head around and be like, wow, this isn't exactly storming Normandy. But I also think that there's there's a lot of sensible things that the military could do to help solve this issue. Uh, there's some staggeringly depressing data, which I think you'll get to about, you know, what what's going on behind the eligibility. One thing I would want them to think about is maybe raise the age, you know, like why raise the age, raise the age. Like right now it's 42 is the oldest you can be to enlist for the first time in, in, in the military. And there's a very narrow set of circumstances which you could do that. Often the, the cap is really 35. Um, you know, as as Joe G, one of our twenty something year old uh, members of our staff, knows, like somebody in their near forty could be more fit than somebody in their twenty. Possibly, yeah. But there's a reason why they target these young people. They want people who are young, who have a lot of energy and, and everything like that. But also, they want people who are going to stay there for 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 a long time. But I, I want to talk about this. I think this is an ebb and flow thing that we see with our military. As we just noted, this is like one of the lowest levels we've seen since 1973. That's when we were leaving Vietnam. At that particular time, you would not be able to get a whole lot of young people to sign up and go to Vietnam a war that a lot of people in that generation did not think was a just war that really uh, defended America's sovereignty or anything like that. This is a set you already gave us. 9% of the young Americans who are eligible to serve in the military actually have an inclination to do so. And that's actually the lowest number since 2007. And you have to go back to 2007 and ask yourself what was going on in 2007 to make um, you know enlistment so low. That was when we were in the middle of the Iraq war. There was a troop surge around that time period. And I remember that around that time period, people who were a little older than me in high school, they didn't want to go to Iraq because we were told Iraq was mission accomplished in 2004. So by 07, it was like, why are we still there? And so, and then what happened right after 07, the economy collapsed and then recruitment levels went up in the, during the Great Recession because, hey, people needed jobs. Well, it also, you know, at that time, and this mirrors the experience of Vietnam, people like, you know, buddy of my neighborhood came back and he was missing a leg. Like, yeah. this is the kind of stuff that yeah. was happening back then. Multiple tours of yeah. duty for those individuals because it was such a smaller pool than it right. was during Vietnam because they didn't have a draft. In, yeah, and everyone just watched Afghanistan be bungled and we're kind of questioning why we're in a lot of the conflicts that we're in in the first place. Right. So. What are some things that the, the military is relying on to try to, like, reframe the narrative here? And one of those things is a 
it's just an it's just an incredible new film that has hit the airways <laughs> and hit the theaters. Top Gun Maverick. I just want to look at this this trailer real quick because they make the military look so awesome. What the hell? Good morning, aviators. This is your captain speaking. I'm 100% certain that the U.S. military has something to do with the framing of this of this film. Uh, Ravi, you, you remember when the first Top Gun came out? Wasn't there like a huge boost in people trying to join the Air Force and the military in general in the 80s when that happened? I was young. I know the claims. Like I know the claims that are being made about that. And it's like 500 percent increase is what they say. Yeah, but there was just generally more patriotism. Like you think yeah. of the Rocky movies, for example. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's just it's hard to even wrap your head around just what the climate was like back then compared mm-hmm. to now. I think a lot of good, also a little bit of weird stuff happening. But I do think there's this contradiction around this and this image that they're portraying and the and the fact that this is one of the most popular movies we've seen in a while. Mm-hmm. And some of the numbers that we're talking about are people not excited about the military. This also just came out and people did get super into it. And I think that's a change of tone from the military. Yeah. But to your point, Corey, they did exchange access to actual military equipment for some input in what the film was about, which it, it wasn't overtly political. I watched yeah. it. Um, it. It didn't feel overtly partisan in any way, shape, well, or good. form. But I mean, it definitely was just kind of like a rosy classic movie, which you don't right. really see a lot of anymore. But um, it was it was nostalgic. It was it was interesting. Well, definitely, we don't see a lot of that in regards to the military. I think Ben Shapiro's comments about the film were interesting. He said it's a very patriotic film, and it shows the military as like a bunch of good-looking young people who are out to defend the country. <laughs> and he praised the filmmakers for not treating the military as either victims of mental health problems or people who are victimized by the evil American regime or as imperialists themselves or as corrupt or terrible which look that's great and obviously there are a lot of brave young men and women who sign up to go into the military who do fit this paradigm uh however it is very important to to realize that there's there's serious after effects to join the military the united states department of veteran affairs in 2016 gave an analysis that about 20 veterans a day were dying from suicide in 2021 researchers found that over 30 thousand active duty personnel and veterans who served in the military after 9-11 died by suicide compared to just a little over 7,000 service members killed in combat. That means that the military suicide rates are four times higher than the deaths that actually occurred during military operations. That is significant. And that is something that I think we as a country don't pay enough attention to when we see people who are on the streets homeless that used to be veterans. If you're 16, 17 years old, you see a homeless veteran, you're thinking in your head, they they serve this country and now they don't have a house to live in. Why why would I do that? Why would I risk my life, possibly risk a limb for, for a service that doesn't seem to benefit me? Absolutely. You know? I mean, I you guys know how I am about government spending and how I'm just generally suspicious of it. But that's one place that I've always believed we were just completely fundamentally letting down the people who literally serve our country and could not be more deserving of taxpayer dollars and but to your point about the fact that this is kind of rosy propaganda at the same time i'd rather this than have a draft and we're questioning (laughs) the the longevity of an all-volunteer force and an all-volunteer force is so much better for morale and for the country and the idea that someone would actually be going because they want to do it because they're striving towards something is so much better than, I mean, like realistically young people today, like I don't think we can handle being drafted into a war and sent off overseas. Like we can't even handle, we were unsafe in our classrooms because of ideas. I'm with you. I don't see the harm in it. And like, you know, like the the same people like Shapiro who are 
you know, pro this, right, this movie, like the military is involved in it, are also critical of ads that the military has been putting out saying it's been too soft. So I'm like, well, how could both of those be true? Well, I think they're pivoting. You know, that was an older ad from like a couple years ago that got a lot of backlash. Although I had a fairly typical childhood, took ballet, played violin, I also marched for equality. I like to think I've been defending freedom from an early age. There's been a lot of talk about the military becoming like too woke or too politicized. And so I think this actually is a pivot because they were trying to pull from predominantly conservative areas of the country. And so now we're pivoting to, you know what, back like to this old all-American war and, and, and tough guy sort of attitude. But is it a pivot? Like anybody who watches Sunday football knows that for as long as I have lived with out interruption, there have been these ads with Navy SEALs and they're painted yeah. and they're coming out of the water. That has never stopped. Except yes. that it changed very dramatically in 2020 amidst or there like was a cultural addition. discomfort. I don't know if there was a subtraction. Like I think yeah. like, yeah, maybe they added, you know, ads about, you know, and I don't see the harm by the way in an ad. I don't For either, instance, but with, you know, uh, a recruit who's a female who has no, uh, two single sex parents. I, I just don't see the problem with that. And the addition of that did not come with a subtraction of like the frogman ads that I've seen. You know, I watched these things yeah. and like it almost seemed like an ad for Call of Duty. I know? think people yeah. just felt alienated about the very like deliberate marketing choices that they made of doing like pretty pink graphics. And um, it was, this is a whole campaign that they did. Right. There was yeah. a whole a whole series of them. And the idea that going to a protest and holding up a sign is like the part of the soldier's life that we're going to capture. I think, hey. you know, realistically <laughs> from a marketing perspective, I think people were alienated by it and it's not the target audience. Well, what better way to become a protester than to go to the exactly. government and have them let you down so that you can then protest the very government that, you know, the, what <laughs> you were know. the best Vietnam protesters we had were people like John Kerry. That, went, that were yeah. in the military, yeah. I mean, <laughs> hey, these protesters are out here throwing bottles at cops. Let's just take them and recruit them and put them in the military, give them something to do. Yeah. From one kind of national security risk to another, we've got a pretty big update when it comes to election security. Senators came out yesterday with a deal to reform the Electoral Count Act, which played a big role in all the chaos surrounding January 6th. Ravi, what exactly are they proposing with this bill? can they actually get it passed? Yeah, I'll be really fast on this one. This is a positive update. You know, the senators, we have nine Republicans and seven Democrats at the moment signing on to a reform package that will make it difficult for lawmakers to challenge a state's electoral votes when Congress meets to count them. It will also clarify the role of the vice president to say that they have no discretion over the results. And it would clarify how quickly and what resources to use for transitions. You know, obviously these aren't plucked out of thin air. These are all things we struggled with after January 6th. There's also a separate bill uh, with fewer sponsors, which would enhance federal penalties for intimidating election officials or tampering with election records. So with the nine Republicans, seven Democrats, I think we can assume you'll get all Democrats for this. So by my count, that means we need one more Republican in order to make this law. Yeah, and it was really interesting to me to see some of the Republican members backing this. I mean, obviously somebody like Susan Collins wasn't that interesting, but you know, the fact Lindsey Graham is backing this, that kind of tells you a lot. Uh, Tom Tillis out of North Carolina, that kind of tells you a lot about, you know, these are people that should be kind of worried about somebody like Trump who would definitely be against something like this. Uh, that kind of tells you where a lot of people in the Republican Party are headed. A lot of them are really going away from the whole Trump is the center of everything narrative. And they're really, they're really, I think they're really starting to try to move past that. You could imagine a critique of this law, and I'm, I'm interested to see if this is what we'll see once this really gets close to passage, that actually saying that lawmakers in Congress have limited ability to challenge a state's electoral votes 
could be a backdoor way to create a new problem in the future if we're electing to state election uh, posts people who are proponents of the big lie, if you know what I'm saying, then that actually empowers those people. So that'll be interesting because I think Congress is really good at solving yesterday's problems, not yeah, tomorrow's not problems. Tomorrow's and problems. so this could be one of those those times where they do exactly that. That's, that's really interesting stuff. So whether you think European baguettes are better than any American bread, the only dough that seems to matter is the dollar. For the first time in nearly 20 years, the euro dropped to one-to-one -one parity with the dollar. And with this newfound parity, Americans are flocking to Florence, Paris, and Berlin, all at discounted prices. Now, Ravi, we'll, we'll get to your villa plans here in a second. But Ricky, let's just start with you. What is going on with this travel boom? Everybody's going to Europe these days. Yeah. So, well, spending among those who are in Europe right now, June of this year compared to June of 2019 is up 56%, which is super dramatic. Um, and people are spending more on luxury goods, fine wines, high-end hotels, so all luxury products. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some interesting examples at the Wall Street Journal uh, pulled from people who just got back uh, one woman who bought a handbag that would have been four thousand dollars here for two thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars in italy oh, nice. um at the eiffel tower you there's a tasting menu that is down thirty five dollars from last year to two hundred and seven dollars so essentially you can get the same experience for less money yeah. today if you're a tourist um and so what I'm essentially kind of factoring through in my head is the idea that the euro's weakness plus the rising dollar is equaling shopping spree but yeah. i'm so ravi help me figure out how like why why is the spending power so much greater for americans all of a sudden yeah there's and there's obviously more going on than the u.s versus euro and tourists for example like the yen sank to a 24-year low against the dollar the same as you know you're seeing similar trends with the colombian peso the indian rupee the south african rand you can go around the world you see similar trends and so to take a step back like what's going on with the dollar i don't think a lot of americans realize what the dollar means not just to people in this country but people all around the world and this also started in 1944, where after World War II, uh, 44 countries met in Bretton Woods in New Hampshire, and they hammered out a new financial system for the, the globe that's been largely in place ever since. This is where the World Bank came from. This is where the IMF came from. And this is where the dollar as a global currency reserve came from. Now, at the time, they pegged the dollar to gold and essentially saying that uh, $35 equaled an ounce of gold. But uh, a few decades later, Nixon then unpegged the dollar to gold. But the dollar Bring has stayed. Bring back the gold as, standard. There you go. Well, uh, <laughs> The, the dollar has stayed as the global uh, currency reserve ever since. And, and the reason why is, by and large, if you have wealth and you want to store it, you want to put it in the most stable possible place. And so what does that mean right now? That means that the less stable the rest of the world gets, mm -hmm. the more people want to put money in dollars because they view it as a, you know, a, a more stable place. And, you know, the joke's on them. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, are we really kidding. not stable? Uh, but also you have, when you have rising interest rates, you have, you know, a higher return yeah. on things like treasuries and bonds. And so that also contributes to this. And so we could both say, all right, this is great in certain ways as an American, but there are also some troubling global trends. What was your experience in Italy? You were there for a good little bit. Did your dollar go further there? I honestly didn't really notice because yeah. I, I didn't have an expectation for what the euro is, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I just, in my head, treat like a transaction in euros is roughly the same as in dollars. And I wasn't buying big things. Yeah. So it really, yeah. I didn't buy any goods there. I was just trying to get- You didn't get, get a Bagari bag yeah. <laughs> or anything like that? Um, but I do think there's this interesting question, which is, is this good or bad for Americans, right? Yeah. And I actually think it's way more complicated. I'm seeing all these memes that are like, yeah, like, yeah, fuck yeah, America. <laughs> but like, actually, 
So this is good for us in a certain narrow sense because it makes imports cheaper, but it's bad for the rest of the world for reasons I talked about. It's a, it's a sort of marker of their instability, but it's also bad for producers, a lot of whom are based in the United States. For example, Apple generates 60% of its uh, revenue from outside of the United States. So the stronger the dollar, the more expensive it is for them. It's also in some ways uh, a tax on other countries who borrow in dollars. You know, back in the 70s, the Treasury Secretary, a guy named John Connolly, said, um, the dollar is our currency, but it's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's kind of what's happening right now. The instability we're seeing around the world, it, in, in many ways, it gets turbocharged the yeah. stronger the dollar gets because it actually makes things more expensive. Uh, it's the, the reverse of what's happening in the United States is happening in other countries. That's very interesting. One question I've always had is policymakers usually welcome a weaker currency to try to stimulate their own economic growth. But now we're seeing that it's possibly bad for the euro, uh, for Europe, for the euro to be on parity with the dollar. But why do some countries like I know China does this a lot. Why do some countries devalue their own currency? Yeah, well, some of it, a lot of it has to do with borrowing. Right. Mm -hmm. So like and also like what you want to stimulate, do you want to stimulate exports or do you want to stimulate imports? Right. And I think at, at various points, countries want to do one or not the other. Uh, I think often, though, it's 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 actually a causation thing. Like sometimes it has nothing to do with what the country actually wants in terms of the strength or weakness of their currency and more to do with the underlying factors that drive that. So, for example, one of the factors that's driving the drop of the euro is their their massive instability in their energy markets. And so I would imagine that the the eurozone is more motivated to solve the uncertainty around their energy than they are around the uncertainty around their currency. currency now yeah. if they solve one, they'll solve the other, right? And so that's what I think is going on here. And so my sense is that uh, there's some people who say that this could go down to 90 uh, oh, you know, wow. you know, 90 US cents per hero. And so this could get even worse for the Eurozone. And, and obviously, as we head towards the winter, there's all sorts of speculation that Putin could tighten the screws yeah. on outflows of energy to Europe. And that could make this uh, way worse for people living on the Winter is coming. And if it goes down to 90, I, I will be. We gotta, yeah, we got to start uh, looking for property. We got to start looking for <laughs> property. We will be going to Europe. Well, we took last week off, but Ravi, that means it's time for you. You've had two whole weeks to come up with a new radical idea. I'm expecting something kind of crazy. So what do you got for this us? This one is actually pretty practical and is almost revisiting conversations that we had. So I hate to disappoint you guys. But uh, And by the way, shout out to our audience. I get more messages about these radical ideas than anything else. <laughs> uh, and I promise to be more radical in the future. But I actually wanted to tie together a bunch of our stories today to to come up with something that I think would solve some uh, many of the things we talked about today, and that would be a national service program. And I think that, and this just ties into some of the stuff that we talked about with canceling student debt. So what I would like to do is take certain jobs, say the military, all the basket of teaching jobs that we talked about. We have nursing and doctor shortage in this country. You could probably put a, a couple other things in there, like school counselors. And I would want the government to incentivize people going into those jobs. And my proposal is people who do those jobs for every four years that you do in those jobs, you get the four years of your education completely free, wiped off of your debt. Uh, obviously there's some accounting that we need to figure out there. So four years in the job, you get four year college degree free. So if you're a doctor, for instance, you get eight years of education, higher education, eight years in service, you get eight years free. So that would be plank one of the program. Plank two would be after that, uh, if you do another four years, you get a down payment on a house, which we can oh. figure out what that is. But I do think uh, this next generation is finding it harder and harder to afford a house. Yeah, and you could either give the down payment. You know, I'd also be open to just like a low interest government backed loan like that mm -hmm. we give to certain members of the federal government and the military. Yeah. anyway. Mm -hmm. So 
that's my proposal. It's not as radical as some of the other things I talked about, but I just think it, it kind of gets at some of the things we're talking about today. What's the expiry on that? Because I feel like there are going to be so many doctors and so many teachers. Yeah, we could reauthorize it. Yeah, well, we could just like like any piece of legislation, maybe we say every 10 years we revisit it and say, but like if let's pretend like we have like the Cuba problem where we're training too uh-huh. many doctors and we're starting to export doctors. I'm cool with that, you know? But for us to get there, we'd have to be, I mean, we will be like that would be an amazing 10 years if we go from the shortage we have in a lot of these jobs now yeah. to a surplus yeah you know? yeah when you first proposed it i thought well if i could just do four years at this job and get four years of my education i'm just gonna do four years of this job and then i'm i'm, I'm dipping after that i'm, I'm piecing out and i'm not gonna do anymore but, but then where, you yeah. add the add the, the, the part about the down payment so then after eight years i'm gone though i'm not gonna do but Honestly, after eight years, you're going to be so set in your ways. Well, especially job. for some of these jobs, and, right? And yeah, and it'd probably be some decent pay, you know, for some of these jobs. So you might you might have something here. You might actually have something that-, that Some of them work. we don't mind people leaving, like the military. It happens yeah, anyway, at naturally. That point, yeah. But like medicine, like who's going to get an MD and then just be like, yeah, okay, like I'm done with this after eight years. Well, it doesn't well, happen that often. Ken Jong, the actor, he was a doctor yeah. <laughs> and he decided, hey, I'm going to be in the hangover, you know? So it, it happens, but it's rare. You're right. Most people are going to try to stay in that field for most of the rest of their lives. So yeah. I, I think that's interesting. I think we uh i mean ricky do you have a problem with it I don't. that sounds like a lot of spending and potentially uh, i mean endless out. spending but you know here's <laughs> but one some of it's gonna happen here's anyway. like a Biden's middle ground gonna, thing gonna, here's an idea he's gonna do part of this anyway in a sloppy way biden would have been way better off with all this student loan forgiveness stuff to say why don't we forgive student loans for very useful jobs yes that is long been my that has long been my my belief i agree with you i think but that's already so i'm kind of baking in that this is a better way to spend money that they're going to spend anyway. It is anywhere. a better way to spend money. At so, least forgive loans for the jobs that, that people matter. are actually generating money with exactly. and helping the society, helping society with. Like yeah. journalists, yes. Yeah. Uh, we want to thank you all for listening and watching today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. The full show is back up. And also, if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you all next time.